let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all your word and we thank you that all your word uh, points us to Jesus. Our Father, we pray uh, that we would understand your word this morning and we pray in your mercy that our hearts would be turned uh, to the Lord Jesus for life. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it as your word, the word of the living God given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It does help to know, doesn't it, that if you're to drink the liquid of a certain bottle, you'd poison yourself. That if you crossed without looking for a train, well, you could have a 200-tonne uh, near a close encounter, actually, that you wouldn't want. And that if you went to retrieve your footy from the substation, well, that might be the end of you. Warnings keep us safe. They help us to live. And, of course, not all warnings are as straightforward as these. Some warnings, uh, well, they want to change your behaviour. The official warning at work for being late again. You know, the vascular surgeon who says you'll lose the other leg if you don't stop smoking. The teacher who says that if you don't submit your assignments, you will fail the subject. Now, those warnings might be harder to listen to, might be harder to comply with, but they're also aimed at helping us flourish. Stay in work, stay healthy, get on. Warnings are helpful. They prevent harm and they can promote our good. And the gospel of Jesus comes to us with warnings. You heard too in our reading. Jesus says you need to choose the narrow way, the way of following Jesus, if you're to live and to be spared destruction. And in the parable of the two builders, Jesus warns us that if we keep on acting foolishly by not putting what Jesus teaches into practice, we will lose everything. The gospel comes to us with warnings. And Moses' great speech in Deuteronomy, running from chapter 5 right to chapter 28, this renewal of the covenant, the formal relationship between the Lord and his rescued people Israel, Moses' great speech in Deuteronomy finishes with warnings as you've just heard in Deuteronomy 28. Now, some of what we hear or read in Deuteronomy 28 is confronting. But the people of Israel were expecting this covenant renewal to end as it does, with a description of the blessings of obedience to the requirement of the covenant and with curses, that is, warnings of the consequences of disobedience. Uh, Blessings and curses had accompanied the making of the covenant at Mount Sinai in Leviticus 26, more than 40 years ago. And it was the way treaties of the time, formal agreements between two parties, ended. And when a king made an agreement with the subject people, he'd end that agreement with blessings, promises about the good that would flow from keeping the treaty, and curses warnings of the bad consequences that would flow from their breaking the treaty, from the people rebelling against him. And like Deuteronomy 28 in those treaties, the bad consequences, the curses, were often longer than the blessings. So this ending, this statement of blessing of covenant obedience and woe of curses, punishment for covenant disobedience, is expected. 
And the blessings here are what the Lord promises his people if they faithfully obey and are careful to do all the Lord has commanded them. The requirement of obedience is clear in verses 1 to 2, but also throughout verses uh, 3 to 14. So verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Or down in verse 13, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail and you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. The blessing of living faithfully in the covenant is a fruitful, peaceful and prosperous life in the land the Lord has given Israel. It's the fulfilment of the relationship the Lord promised to Abraham and his descendants, that they would be his special people called by his name, that is, marked out as his very own from all the nations of the earth. And of course these blessings are a picture in a sense of the reversal of the curse on the ground that followed Adam's sin. Because in the land it wouldn't any longer be frustration but fruitfulness that will reward their labour. Now their obedience is not the cause of Israel's good life in the land. That's God's gracious promise to their ancestors and God's gracious and faithful commitment to keeping it seen in bringing this sinful people into the land. But their obedience is the means of Israel enjoying relationship with the Lord their God and all that means for their security and prosperity. So, the end of the covenant, blessing is promised to obedience. The curses, starting at verse 15, are what the Lord warns will happen if his people abandon him by worshipping other gods and disobeying his commands, rejecting his rule over them by his word. And again, that this is a warning against disobeying is repeated throughout the passage. Verse 15, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all these curses shall come upon you. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration all you undertake to do on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Uh, later in verse 45, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. And verse 36 says, because you did not obey, sorry, verse 62, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So these curses are a warning about the outcome of disobedience, of abandoning the Lord and relationship with him in the covenant. And the warning is given with such thorough comprehensiveness to communicate that disobedience, a, a failure to heed the warning, will lead to an outcome that is as bad as it can possibly be. Now, much of what is said here we find difficult, but it is actually describing realities known for ancient peoples, the realities that accompanied the sword, conflict and conquest. The Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. Oh, the realities that accompany famine, when crops failed either because of drought or pest, the heavens over you shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder 
And we've experienced that, haven't we? That dirt falling from the sky. And yes, the reality of pestilence, of plague, disease. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt. Because of these things, because of the sword, because of a famine, because of pestilence, Israel's life in rebellion will actually be marked by futility when nothing they undertake prospers, either because of human oppressors, verses 30 to 32, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Your sheep will be given to your enemies, but there'll be no one to help you, either because of human oppressors or the hostility of nature. You'll carry much much seed into the field and gather a little, for the locust shall consume it. The grapes, the worm shall eat it. Your olives shall drop off. The Lord is not making up new and unheard of events here. No, all these terrors were too well known in the ancient world. He's warning them of things they knew of and could relate to. More, these outcomes for disobedience are fitting, apt. They're actually matching Israel's choice of disobedience and abandonment of the Lord. You see, choosing to put their trust in themselves, making their own will ultimate, well, they'll then experience the human will to power unrestrained. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Not serving the Lord, who is the source of all our good, verses 47 to 48, won't make them free. Instead, they'll be subject to another master in want because you do not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness. You shall serve your enemies in nakedness, lacking everything, or sheltering in what they trusted in, in their high walls. That is, the work of their own hands. Uh, That won't exalt them but will actually bring upon them misery and degradation, as you can read in the passage. And abandoning the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, they will then again experience Egypt, they'll experience its diseases, and they will end up there. They'll be brought back to Egypt. The Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. Choosing other gods, they'll be given up to the worship of their idols gods of wood and stone who cannot help them. Having put their confidence in themselves, they'll be left to themselves and realise their powerlessness. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of life. You see, choosing to be like the nations they dispossessed from Canaan, they will in the end be dispossessed themselves. The Lord is giving Israel a graphic, powerful warning about what will follow abandoning his worship and rule for the worship of of other gods, for their own rule, where he gives them up to what they have chosen in turning away from the Lord. But the curses of Deuteronomy 28, these warnings are actually very unsettling for us, aren't they, and difficult to listen to or read. They tap into our fears where life is out of control and we're subject to relentless misfortune and there's nothing we can do to reverse it. And so we can feel and can relate 
to the psychological distress, the grief and the anxiety Israel will know where they can find no rest in the morning. You shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you'll say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel. In fact, the comprehensiveness and thoroughness of their destruction awes and troubles us, doesn't it? Where there's no escape, no one to help, no one to even show compassion. In fact, there'll be no safe place, verse 16, city or country. They'll be cursed. There'll be no time unaffected. Verse 19, when you come in or when you go out, whether you're at work or home time. In fact, no part of life, we're told, will be unaffected. Marriage, home, property, children. The judgment described here is relentless and final. No peace, no escape. They'll experience these consequences, says the Lord, until they are destroyed as a people, removed from the land. And what perhaps worries us most is the Lord's unwavering determination to punish, expressed shockingly in verse 63. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Delight. That's a way of saying that as long as they disobey, as long as they turn toward other gods, the Lord's attitude to them will be the total opposite of the grace they have experienced up till now. We should not think that God acting justly according to his righteous character causes him grief. Reading these curses. As we see how fearsome is the Lord's wrath, how inescapable his justice can unsettle us, can't it? Unsettle us about the Lord. They can make us wonder about the criticism of the Old Testament God that he's somehow harsh and vindictive, not the same God as the God of the New Testament. So let's think about this God who warns his people. Firstly, these are warnings. Warnings spoken in language that's been chosen in its horror, thoroughness and relentless to help these warnings achieve their goal. These warnings are meant to impress, to say that rebellion against the Lord will have the worst imaginable outcome and that if you persist in that rebellion, you will be unable to escape his judgment. They're meant to tell rebels that there is nowhere to hide and that the Lord is never going to tire or give up in opposing rebellion. They're meant to impress so that the people would not rebel. They're spoken so the people would actually be conscientious and persevering in obeying and enjoy blessing. The God who speaks these warnings actually wants life for his people. But he knows that true life is only found in relationship with him and so he presents as starkly as possible the consequences of abandoning that relationship. So these warnings have a good purpose, to preserve Israel in covenant relationship with their God, which is their life and their title deed to their land. 
Oh, these warnings are presented starkly without mentioning the possibility of ceasing to rebel, of turning back to the Lord for mercy, and that's part of their communicative, their kind of rhetorical strategy to make us listen. But mercy for those who return is what Deuteronomy goes on to mention in the very next section. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. God is always merciful to the repentant, to the one who turns back to him. And not only is God merciful, Israel's history tells us the Lord was very patient with Israel. In the face of their rebellion, time and again, the Lord repeated these warnings and called them, back to, called them to turn back to him for mercy. You know, even when he brought some of these punishments on some of them, it was actually to cause Israel to turn back and find life. Listen to the prophet Amos, hundreds of years later. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Famine. Yet you did not return to me. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I'd send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. That is drought. <laughs> the Lord sent famine, sent famine and drought. Yet, it says, they did not return to him. And Amos 4 continues to speak of other things we've read of in Deuteronomy. Blight and mildew, pestilence, plague, sudden disaster. And always the goal, the hope, was repentance. That what was happening to some was meant to be a warning to all. Yet it says they did not return to the Lord. So the Lord didn't bring these judgments of Deuteronomy 28 all at once or to all. There were anticipations in history, in their history, of what would be the final judgment. And those anticipations were meant to bring Israel to repentance as they experienced both the Lord's power and his faithfulness to his word. They were meant to give them opportunity to turn back and find mercy. They were warnings. And throughout that history, over centuries, right to the end, the Lord was calling them back to himself repeatedly through the prophets. Just one example from the prophet Ezekiel, speaking before the final destruction of Jerusalem in fulfilment of the words spoken here in Deuteronomy 28. Verse 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why would you die, O house of Israel? You see, the Lord wasn't waiting there vindictively to wallop them as soon as they stepped out of line. It was exactly the opposite. He was patient. He was calling them to turn back to himself, promising mercy to those who turned back to him, being patient 
even as they showed him contempt. He was always, in a sense, trying to bring them to see the seriousness of their rebellion and what would follow from their persevering in their rebellion so they would turn. And the Lord's patience with Israel is extraordinary. Even though they abandoned the Lord in the very next generation. That's right, the the generation that followed those who went into the land. Even Even though that next generation, as judges said, did evil what was in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord their God. Even though that next generation turned away from the Lord, it was actually not until, and that's about, you know, let's rough figures, 1400 BC. It's not until about 721 BC that the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians and its people deported, as the Lord said would happen. And that was a kingdom that had been idolatrous from its foundation. And it was not until 586 BC that Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, was captured and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army and the people deported to Babylon, made to leave the land, as the Lord said they would. So think about that. That is 700 to 900 years that the Lord waited, that the Lord called, but the people did not repent. And the behaviour the Lord speaks of deserves the punishment he warns of, being deprived of prosperity and life in the land, ceasing to be the Lord's people in the Lord's presence in the Lord's lands. These punishments that they are warned of are just the Lord giving them up to the consequences of their own actions. Now, imagine that you're in a fire-ravaged area, but your house was spared. So you did the right thing. You invited one of your neighbours and their family to come and share your house while theirs was being rebuilt. So you've got two families living together and so you agree on a few rules to help everyone live together well and to preserve the functioning of the house. You know, simple rules, the rules you might make. Respect the property. Don't take too long in the bathroom. Switch the lights out. No noise after a certain time so that everyone can get to sleep. Clean up after yourself in the kitchen. Oh, and yes, if there's disagreement or dispute or something that needs changing, let's sit down and talk. Now, what would you think if they just ignored the rules and ignored you? You know, always left the dishes and pans unwashed in the sink. If one of them, say, decided that they preferred your son's bedroom and so moved out all his stuff and moved in themselves. If they partied on until 2 or 3am every night. What'd you do? Well, you'd try and talk, wouldn't you? You'd ask them to change. You'd tell them it couldn't go on. What would you do if that made no difference? If they started to act as if they, not you, owned the place. You know, they decided they'd like to remodel to suit them, so knock down a wall on your house. Or you came home one day and they'd change the locks and put your gear out on the street. Now, you would probably be angry, wouldn't you? I suspect very angry. And you'd be determined to set things right, to regain ownership of what is rightfully yours. Angry and determined because 
you'd expect your provision to be received with gratitude, your presence as owner to be acknowledged. You'd expect your ownership to be respected by them, respected by their using the property in the way that you'd instructed them. And if they wouldn't respect your ownership, well, you'd be asking them to leave. And when they refused, it would be their possessions on the street and the locks changed again, even if you had to have the police around to help. And you know what? People would say you were right. Now think about Israel. The land is the Lord's land. They've come into it by his grace, his kindness. And they possess and live in it by agreeing to the covenant, saying the Lord was their God and they would live his way, obey his commands. And when they won't obey, when they go and worship other gods, when they're ungrateful, when they're wanting to remove the Lord from his place amongst them as king in his land, the Lord is right to be determined to set things right, to restore his rule, to remove them from his land. Their ingratitude, their disobedience, their determination to replace the Lord's rule with their own, to say the land is theirs without the Lord, well, that deserves their being removed from this land, ceasing to be his people. They're ceasing to enjoy his blessing. There is no injustice in the punishment the Lord is warning of. And where they're enacted, they actually show the Lord's righteousness. That is, that he keeps the covenant. He does exactly what he's committed himself to, even when they have abandoned their commitment to the covenant. And the starkness of this warning is to bring home to Israel that there's no third way. It's obedience and life or disobedience, abandoning the Lord's rule, and death. There's no option of staying in the Lord's land and having nothing to do with the Lord. There's no neutral position where Israel would be free to do what pleased them without the Lord. See, they're not free to say, well, I'm not going to worship the Lord, but no, no, I'm not going to worship Baal. No, I, I'm just going to get on being accountable only to myself, trusting in myself and, you know, my own hard work and my own wisdom for security and prosperity. No, you see, that neutral option would be just another form of thankless rebellion, wouldn't it? Using the Lord's gift, occupying the Lord's land while despising the Lord, not giving him thanks or acknowledgement. It would actually be just like somebody living in your house and ignoring you completely. For Israel, it's obedience and life or disobedience, abandoning the Lord's rule and death. There is no third option. And the question is not really whether the Lord's warnings, the punishments he warns of, are just. Now, actually, the real question is, why did Israel ignore this clear warning as history shows it did? This warning is clear, powerfully and emotively expressed. God sounds serious in Deuteronomy 28, doesn't he? Yes, God was so patient. You know, he even gave them the experience 
of some of these punishments so that they would know he was serious, that he did what he said, even as he urged them repeatedly to turn back to him. But they didn't turn back and they brought upon themselves the destruction spoken of. Now, why did they ignore these warnings? Why did they choose the curse and not the blessing? That's actually an important question for us because as we've heard, God has given us warnings in the Gospel of Jesus, warnings of a judgment and the outcome of judgment. So Paul in Romans 2, speaking to somebody who thought they were moral, could judge others, he says, Do you suppose, O man or woman, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, that is, a heart that will not give itself to doing God's will, to honouring God, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. (coughs) And Paul says, that God raising Jesus from the dead has given us assurance that this righteous judgment will take place. Now those gospel warnings are just. You see, we live in God's world. We enjoy <coughs> excuse me. We enjoy the light God has given us. So our ignoring, our disobeying our ingratitude to God, our trying, in a sense, to get God out of his house, out of his world. Those things deserve the punishment God warns of, being kicked out of the life he has given, kicked out of his presence, of facing the worst imaginable outcome. Uh, The warnings are just and they are serious telling us that if we don't turn back to the Lord, we are facing a future that is as bad as it can possibly be. And the Lord doesn't just warn with words. He hasn't abandoned history. There's enough going on to tell us that, well, we're not in control, that our prosperity depends on him and he can take it away in a moment. Think of this summer, drought and fire and, yes, pestilence. That's God trying to get our attention. So why do we, or so many we know, ignore the warnings God so clearly gives of judgment in the gospel? It is a puzzle, isn't it? Because that's not the way we normally live life. You know, I was coming uh, around a corner on the Plenty Bike Path, if you know the path, it's down near the wooden bridges between Greensboro and Viewbank. Anyhow, uh, I was coming around, you know, cause, and I was coming around the corner moderately fast because I was kind of in the zone. And as I was coming around the corner, I met a cyclist coming the other way. Now, thankfully, we were each able to take evasive action. But it was a close call, as it will be if you take those corners in the middle. Now, did I change my behaviour after that? Did I slow down to make sure I went through the corners on the left and not in the middle? Did I start looking out for others on the path? Well, you bet I did. I no longer think I'm invisible, that near the invincible. That near miss was a warning. And so I changed my cycling behaviour. We know how to respond to warnings in other parts of our lives. 
So why do we ignore God's warnings? Let me suggest some reasons people give. They may or may not be yours, but let's think about them. (laughs) Some people say God's not there. This isn't his world. But actually God raised Jesus from the dead. He's living and active in his world. You'd have to be convinced that Jesus is not risen to ignore this warning. Oh, others say God shouldn't take himself so seriously. He's got no right to judge us. Well, think of people living in your house ignoring you. Are your rights and dignity of more value than God's? He's created us. He's given us everything. He has the right to judge and he won't stop being God just to accommodate you. Some say God's not a good good, good God. Look at the world. He doesn't measure up. I do a better job of running the universe. I'm more wise or more moral or... Really? Really? Look at his patience with Israel. Let's, Let's talk about the God who is, not the fiction. You are not more patient than he is. Look at his good laws. You're not more just than he is. His good creation. You're not wiser than he is. Oh yes, and above all, look at his saviour, Jesus, sent into the world to save God's enemies by dying for them. You are not more loving than he is. Now we will all have questions about why this or that happens in the world, but we all have to remember of whom we are asking the questions. Someone greater, wiser, more loving or patient than you and I can imagine. Somebody known in his son. Someone who in the end deserves to be trusted. Oh, other people will say, God cries wolf. He isn't really going to act. I mean, that's what the wicked says, uh, say, the Psalms tell us. You know, God's forgotten, he doesn't see. Well, the history of Israel proves them wrong. Just because his judgments weren't immediate didn't mean they weren't Sure, they lost the land. You know, the bit of human history of reality that you and I can see is just a very small slice. You wouldn't want to generalise about the universe from that. God has acted and he will act in fulfilment of his word. And some people, especially in our society, they like to think that there's a third way. I can be a moral, upright person, deserving of life and blessing, independent of God. Well, no, you can't. You cannot live in God's world and think you are good where you do not give your creator thanks and honour, where you are always trying to push him out of your life. Now, you might have other reasons for not heeding the warning. But let me suggest what I think is the real cause Now, I'm not wishing to offend, but if I do offend, come and talk. Do you know what I think is the real cause? We don't want to change. We like our lives the way they are. We like being in charge. Now, we're addicted to believing the lie Adam believed, that we are like God and so can take God's place in our own lives, even if our choices and their outcomes show how much we are not God. 
because they so often lead to death and misery, not life. But that's why we don't listen to the warnings. We don't want to change and not wanting to change, we are unable to change by ourselves. You see, we're blind people who are comfortable in our blindness. Those reasons for not listening to God, if we're honest, are those reasons are the lies we tell ourselves or let ourselves believe to make ourselves feel good about not changing, to tell ourselves we don't need to change in face of God's clear and repeated warnings. God warns us in the gospel that there will be a judgment in which he will give each one of us what he or she deserves and we need to repent, to turn back to him and find mercy by trusting his son Jesus. And God tells us that to not heed the warning leaves us facing God's just anger at our rebellion, our ingratitude, our wanting to get him out of his creation. And it tells us that his just anger is inescapable if we persevere in our rebellion. Now the history of Israel tells us God is patient but it also tells us there is a time when his patience runs out. And it tells us he is serious. He does what he says. They lost the land. God warns us for our good so that we would live and not die. And so if you haven't heeded the gospel's call for repentance, now is the time to turn back to God. Don't keep taking refuge in lies. Now's the time to call upon the risen Lord Jesus for forgiveness and mercy for life. And to call upon Jesus is really to say sorry as you confess the wrongs you have done, the way you have used God's good gifts without giving him thanks, the way you sought to ignore God and push him away, the way you have disobeyed him. He said, love your neighbour, and there have been times when you've not. He says, tell the truth. Times you haven't. He says, don't be envious, and you have. To call out to Jesus is to confess the wrong we've done and to ask him to forgive you. Believing the gospel that he has died for your sins and that God has raised him from the dead and that he has authority to forgive you and bring you peace with God. God warns you. He brought you here to hear the warning because he doesn't want you to die. He wants you to be reconciled, find peace with him. So act. And if you're already a believer in Jesus, well, you ought to know that there are warnings addressed especially to you as well, given for our good to keep us in relationship with God through his Son. You know those warnings. Our Lord Jesus warns about the need to persevere in trusting and following him. John 15, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. He warns us that to, be, to abandon Jesus is to be left with nowhere to turn for help on the last day and to be cast out forever. So as you sit here listening, are you living faithful to him? Are you growing in knowledge of Jesus? Are you sinking roots deep into his word that will sustain your faith in him in the long run? Are you loving him?
by doing what he commands because that is what it is to abide in Jesus. Love him by doing what he commands, forgiving, loving his people, doing good. And there are warnings to us believers about persisting in sin and the urgency with which we should get it out of our lives. Paul in Ephesians 5 makes sure, may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Or our Lord in Mark 9, very clear, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to end a life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Now that is our Lord Jesus speaking because he loves us. He gives us this warning for our good. So we have to break with sin. Oh yes, he's patient with us, but he is serious about what he speaks. So we need to heed his warning and heed it today. And so if you're a believer and you know there is sin in your life, you ought to confess it, trusting his promise that he'll be faithful and just and forgive us our sins. And you ought to resolve with the power of the Spirit to determinedly put it to death, to finish with it once and for all. And if you're having trouble doing that, you ought to come and speak. Talk so you can be encouraged and think through ways you can break with that sin. Now those warnings, oh yes, they might be uncomfortable, unsettling, sound harsh. But remember, God warns us for our good, to give us life. So don't despise his kindness. Don't leave here thinking, I can keep on doing that sin and be safe. Listen to him. Turn away from trusting yourself. Turn away from your sin. And turn to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and mercy, for being kept amongst his people, for the rich and abundant life, that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that we would be hearers who do, that we wouldn't be like the foolish person who hears what Jesus says and goes away and forgets, but we'd be like the wise person who listens to Jesus and put what he says into practice. Help us to hear your warnings of judgment. Turn our hearts to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and life, we pray. And help us to hear the warnings that Jesus gives his people to break with sin. Please give us through the power of your spirit grace to live lives in fellowship with him, doing what is right. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you love us enough to warn us of what it means to turn our back on you. Keep us trusting and following your son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.